Hello and welcome to the Muck Growth Podcast. As you know, a core value of mine, and it likely is a value of yours because you're here, is connection and community and knowing just the biological importance of togetherness, of relating, of of this human journey. And what are we doing here if we're not doing it together, if we're not sort of being lost in the mysteries of life and in the world and the way the universe works and laughing at it and also that there's this biological part of us that needs to connect and is terrified of losing connection and and wants to be here and simultaneously is wondering what the hell we're doing here. And and to be stuck in this paradox and doing it alone is next to impossible. That's why since the beginning of the pandemic, if you've been listening to me that long, uh, you know that I have been very against lockdowns. I have said from the beginning that the harms of lockdowns will far exceed uh, the harms of COVID. And there's just something innately within them that is anti-human, anti-life. And I have constantly been on, you know, I wasn't saying those things with no desire to learn about what my position was. I came to that position, one, because of just how I felt intuitively, and two, based on consuming all sides of the argument. I can't wait for you to hear today's podcast episode because I'm like, hey, I can say it, but I don't have any professional credential behind what I'm saying. I can gather and assimilate information and share with you what my position is on a subject. And you can say that's not good or I don't agree with you or whatever it is. And that's totally fine because I respect other people's opinions, of course. And I was like, I got to get someone who this is their job. This is their work. And I'm I'm so excited about today's podcast episode because I've wanted to bring this conversation more to the forefront. And one of the things I was thinking about is that this conversation about lockdowns is hard to have when we're in it, especially when we've been convinced by our public health officials that it's the only way out. Two weeks to flatten the curve and now we're at what, 19 months? And it's starting to open up and it's starting we're getting this sense of life. And the feeling I had is perhaps the dissonance will be less now because we recognize the sacrifices we were making to, you know, achieve what we were trying to achieve. And my conversation has always been, but what happens if what we're doing is actually worse than what we're trying to prevent? And that dialogue, that public health dialogue needs to be occurring, not by me, but just in general. And the fact that that conversation has been censored has been quite alarming to me because it says why the truth is not afraid of being criticized, right? Like the truth is not afraid of dialogue because in dialogue, the truth is discovered. In today's episode, we touch on lockdown science. We touch on the subject of variants and mutations as well as vaccination of children. And should we be doing that? Should we not? We talk about all the things that are really important for you to make good decisions for yourself, because that's ultimately what we are all aspiring to do, is to take responsibility for ourselves like adults do, and 
not allow ourselves to be co-opted and inundated with fear that makes us not still be in our bodies and our hearts. So let's return to our hearts. Let's have this conversation. I was so excited to find Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He is incredible. This podcast episode is going to blow your mind. If you want to learn about the science of lockdowns, you want to learn about all these fears that are being created about variants and vaccinating children, all of this stuff. It's so important that we inform ourselves so that we can choose the level of fear that we want to have, not just adopt the level of fear that we're being given. Now, Dr. Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. This guy is badass. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He directs Stanford's Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. Such an incredible human. I love how he holds the position of nuance, of dancing in the space of the conversation that we should all be having. You know, there's so much on one extreme or the other, and it's such an act of love and expansion to be able to be in the space between to practice being objective. You know, recently I heard the quote, don't have hope, be hope. In so many ways, I think Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is hope. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode and the end because there is a message of hope. It's just so important that we are all educated and fully informed on what is occurring in our world and our lives. And I can't stand by and watch as viable, open conversation is censored by big tech. I just can't because it's the same act of not allowing any dialogue that makes us uncomfortable. Any conversation that challenges a main narrative should still be allowed. And Dr. Bhattacharya, does a, he explains how public health actually does require a certain positioning and you can't not have that or you undermine it. And so fascinating to hear these perspectives and to get some deeper understanding and awareness from someone who is an expert in this field. All right. Hot off the press. I got to tell you, Organifi has a new blend and it is chocolatey delicious. It's called Harmony and it is made for healthy hormones. It's designed for women. So it combines superfoods and adaptogens that have been used for centuries to support inner balance and bliss. With the ladies in mind, this blend is designed so you can feel your best and experience daily harmony. It's plant-based, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, it's dairy-free, it's soy-free. It's got cacao, maca, shatavari, stinging nettle, ginger, turmeric, coconut milk, chaste tree. I mean, it sounds delicious. It is delicious. I've tasted it. It's chocolatey delicious, so you can't go wrong. And it's designed for healthy hormones to use during your menstrual cycle. So there you go. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love to save 20% and get free shipping. And that is special to create the lovers on top of the 20%. So go to Organifi.com slash create the love. So with all that said, I can't wait. Let's do this. And before we get into it, please, just a reminder, wherever you listen to this, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Make sure that you leave it a five-star review and a written review. I appreciate you so much. Let's educate ourselves. Let's expand ourselves because this is all about relationship, connection, community, our relationship to our own selves too. So let's go. 
Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, I'm so excited to welcome you today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. You know, I think the first thing people want to know in the time of trying to understand the world circumstances that we're currently in is the question like, why should I listen to you? Like, what qualifies you to give us some sort of advice or thought or feeling or research-based idea versus, you know, where they, it's so easy to dismiss someone's opinion or thoughts at this point, even experts. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I'm a little uncomfortable answering that just because I, I think one of the big problems we've had in this epidemic is that we have not listened to enough voices, mm-hmm. that we sort of uh, silenced people on based on sort of perceived perceived expertise or just like, you know, for instance, famously Scott Atlas got silenced because he's a radiologist, even though he's worked in public health for, for you know, decades, especially in health policy. I mean, I think uh, one of the big problems the epidemic has been that we have only listened to a narrow set of maybe, maybe epidemiologists, virologists, some immunologists, and that's about it. As if the lockdowns, which have had effects on basically every single person on, on the face of the earth in every single way, is in the within the expertise of just those folks. But to answer your question directly, I have an MD and a PhD in economics. So I have a doctor and an economist. I've been studying health policy and epidemiology of infectious disease for 20-some years. Going back to the HIV days, I've worked on antibiotic resistance, on, on HIV-N1, on, on epidemic spread of disease during H1N1. So I've been studying this kind of work for a while now. And on COVID in particular, I've worked on a whole series of studies, including on how widespread disease was in, in April of last year, whether lockdowns worked and a whole bunch of other things like that. So uh, should you listen to me? Well, why don't we find out? Yeah, right. Well, I appreciate what you're saying because really, I mean, it was a great articulation of saying like, we only really followed this very narrow version of opinion that supported a specific story. And you know, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep for 14 years. So sort of looking back and experiencing how pharma as a rep, even you sort of guided the narrative of the key opinion leaders that you would put in front of physicians to teach. I'm watching the same thing occur, but it's on such a global scale that it's hard for my nervous system or even my body to fathom, like, wait, I know, because I, I, I read all of this information. I've been following, you know, yourself and and the other founders of the Great Barrington Declaration I'm just sort of in quite worried and also in awe that this mass silencing can occur on such a, I mean, a global scale with something as, as important as public health, you know, where public health, I would have imagined you're the expert in it. When you look historically, was it not always a discussion how we would navigate pandemics? It was. I mean, we've had open discussion in science and public health going back. I mean, that's just the tradition. Actually, be a little bit careful about that. In science, of course, the norm is open discussion. Censoring science is the death of science. Mm. Because you know what? If you're a scientist, you're wrong. That's just <laughs> I like what, that. what we are, right? We don't, we don't, we never, we're, we, we have guesses and we, we wait with bated breath until our guesses are proved wrong and then we make another guess. That's the fun of science actually, right? And, and as soon as you close down that process, you've ended science. At the same time, in public health, which is based on science, but it has a slightly different norm, right? So the norm requires some unanimity of messaging in order to be effective, right? So, uh, you know, I don't, if I go around saying smoking is good for you, well, I mean, first of all, I'm wrong. That's ridiculous. Smoking is terrible for you. But, you know, if I'm a prominent person saying that, I'll undermine public health. So there's some sense in which you have some responsibility to have the same message everyone else is having. 
The problem in this epidemic is that that norm, the moral basis of that norm, is that there actually is scientific unanimity on a topic. There is basically scientific unanimity that smoking is terrible for you. It is awful, right? So the, the norm that you shouldn't say something against that unless you have extraordinary proof otherwise in public health makes, there's a moral basis for it. But here we have a disease that's new. We have a situation which, which is new. Science is evolving in it. As we speak, we, you know, we go back and like lots of things I've learned since a year and a half. I mean, how could, could I not have, right? That we've, we now have hundreds of thousands of papers that we could not have read in March of 2020 because they didn't exist. Not that I've read hundreds <laughs> of thousands of papers, but you know. I get it. Um, but in any case, I mean, so it, the moral basis for that required unanimity of messaging just didn't exist. And it was in, inappropriately applied to silence the scientific discussion. First, I think it has led to disastrous COVID policies. And then second, I think it's undermined the, the trust that the public has, both in public health and science, and I think that's quite unfortunate, something we're going to have to work very hard to regain. That is, we in the public health and scientific communities to regain, if it's possible to do so. Well, as, as someone who works in the area of a relationship, I've been observing, you know, what's occurred in terms of lockdowns, the impact psychologically, the impact on relationships, the impact on our bodies, the inflammatory process of all the stress. You know, I've been watching this sort of evolution of the pandemic response, which really hasn't evolved at all with new information. And so I'm curious, just so people understand, like, where was the basis for lockdowns? Like, we did this massive, like, we know, I said from the very beginning, the effects of lockdowns will be greater than the effects of COVID. And I'm really curious how we just decided this was a good plan. And it was going to be two weeks. And I mean, we're still, I'm in Canada, so you know what that's, you know what's going on there. Pandemic plans didn't call for lockdowns. I mean, there was a lot of discussion, you know, actually starting after the 9-11, there was a big discussion about what to do in case of a bioterrorist attack. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there was a, there was an avian flu threat. There was a couple of pandemics and a huge amount of discussion about what the right sort of strategy is. Almost every pandemic plan called for keeping people, keeping society functioning as well as you can, not panicking people, good adult communication with people about what risks are, working to protect the vulnerable, right? Those are the basic ideas. And, you know, there's variations on it, but a lot of the, the, the that's, that those are the basic ideas around the, the pandemics before this pandemic of thinking. When the disease hit in China and people saw that the Chinese response, which was this draconian lockdown, locking people in their houses, dragging people out in the street that are sick, forcing them to quarantine hospital, I mean, all kinds of things that were I thought incompatible with free society. Well, I mean, what, ha what happened is like people looked at that, then they looked at looked at Italy, and they saw body bags, they saw overrun hospital systems, and they I think they panicked. And you can see this in the discussions, those the Fauci emails. I mean, there's some sense of like, you know, we we there's something extraordinary has happened. We don't the, what we had before probably won't work now, and then we and, and we threw it out the window mm. in favor of these Chinese style lockdowns, and, and it sort of fed on itself. Because if you if you don't do anything, then you're going to kill people, right? Mm -hmm. On top of that, you had these sort of mechanistic models of society, of society these these compartment models, these SIR models. And you had groups like like Imperial College London putting out these models, saying, "Well, look in these models, which are essentially what they are, are models of think of it like if you ever played Sim City, right? You yeah. got you got you got people randomly interact with other people. That's what they, that's what these models are. And if in these models you take people and you separate them apart, well, then they won't spread the disease to this person. 
And so you have this like built into the, the guts of the model automatically, not actual science, just assumption mm-hmm. that if you keep people apart, you will reduce disease spread, at least for, for the time being, right? And so you had those two things sort of merged together in March of 2020 to say, well, if we don't lock down, we're going to kill people. And for politicians, they're hearing this message. There's this terrible infectious disease going around, this pandemic, and they need to be seen to be doing something, yeah. right? Keeping society running as a little panic as possible while protecting the vulnerable. That doesn't, that's not doing something. That's not doing everything, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping people apart, dramatic interventions to keep people apart and save lives. Well, that's doing something. So it's, it was, it was this sort of confluence of panic with these ideas that that rejected pre-pandemic plans all, all pulled together that led to, I think, the, the, the lockdowns that we've seen. Wow. So they weren't based on any sort of actual significant science that said lockdowns are highly effective and this is how we're going to get through this. It's unprecedented history, right? I mean, I, and, and you actually, Mark, you mentioned something about something that's, I think, quite important about the psychological harms from these lockdowns, like, you, like the, the, the anxiety that you're talking about, it's, it's now borne out in, in studies all around the world. I think the U.S., one in three Americans, something like that, something on that order, of, uh, have experienced anxiety or depression during the, during the lockdowns, uh, just an unprecedented level. One in four young Americans last June of, June of last year, 12 months ago, seriously considered suicide. So, I mean, I think it's, it's one of these things where like, the depth of psychological damage that we've done to the population. I mean, there's lots of other physical damage mm-hmm. we can talk about as well, but it shouldn't surprise us, right? So like we're meant, humans are meant to be in community with one yeah. another. This lockdown is an anti-human intervention. It violates, of course, it violates our rights, but also violates sort of what, what it means to be human. I mean, we really do need to be in connection with one. And, and, and I've seen stories where mothers have been kept from their babies, newborn babies. When I've seen that in the news too, I'm like, have we lost our minds? Like, especially since, you know, the immunity that they can get from breast milk and all the different types of things that we, like the bond, the attachment, there's a severing of the attachment in the first moments of life. It it just is so, it feels, although I'm not an expert in these areas, I'm like, it feels like that is anti-science. Like fear is actually driving that decision. And these People who don't have the time to even know that or study that because, well, one, the woman's pregnant and the husband's dealing or the, the parent is dealing with whatever stress that is during a freaking pandemic. And they're being led by these people they trust, but actually the choices being made are not evidence-based. They actually cause harm. And that to me is just, it's so hard for my brain to fathom because it feels like we're in an abusive relationship where the truth is just hidden in this corner and we're told not to look at it. You know what I mean? No, I mean that's what comes when you decide that the only thing that matters is 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 infection control, and not any infect, not just all infections, one particular infection, and everything else in life makes no difference. All that can be thrown aside in order to do infection control. It's, it's what comes from we start our conversation with expertise. It's, it's what comes from telling one group of people whose 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 entire life is focused on one thing to say, look, you're in charge of all of human life. It's just, a, it's a mistake. It, we should have, from the very beginning, have said to the infectious disease docs, the epidemiologists, look, uh, th- thanks for your input. We have to marry that against or put that up against all of the other kinds of things in life that we care about, you know, sort of, you know anxiety, sort of psychological health, physical health, well-being of the population generally. And, and instead, we said, we'll throw all that aside just to focus on control of COVID. Yeah. And, and to be clear too, like you're not arguing 
just so people understand what is your actual position, is you're not arguing that we do nothing, right? So if you could explain what the Great Barrington Declaration was about and what your actual strategy is and, and where that comes from. Funny thing is, it's, it's actually the old pandemic plans. There's nothing original in it. It just seems shocking to talk about it <laughs> in October of 2020 for some reason. It, it, so the, the, the idea is focus protection. That's the central idea of the Great Barrington Declaration. The, so the, the idea is, is that you identify who is at greatest risk from this pathogen. In this case, it, we know this. We knew this from the very beginning. We, it's older people. 80% of the deaths have happened to people over 65 worldwide, I think, something on that order. And uh, certain people with certain chronic conditions that are under 65, but like, but basically we kind of know who they are. And you adopt policies to reduce the risk that they get exposed to the virus, whereas letting the rest of society go on. Why, why let the rest of society go on? Not because you want them infected, but rather because the harms from the lockdown are worse for them than the, the disease. Certainly for children, that's the case. I mean, I think I argue for most of the rest of the adult population that are that are under sixty-five. So the, the I mean, that's the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, what does it mean practically? So I would I would divide it into two. So I'd say before the vaccines and after the vaccines. So before the vaccines, it's complicated, right? So it would depend on the living circumstances of the individual. So someone who's living in a nursing home, you do not expose them to the virus. Right. So now if you if you're thinking this way, the aim that you have is not infection control generally, but rather protection of vulnerable in specifically. So you don't, for instance, throw people with the virus back into nursing homes like that we did in New York, like we did in New Jersey. Actually, I think that the same thing happened in Quebec. This is because the principle is you protect the vulnerable. The vulnerable are people older. We knew this from January of, of 2020. So that's a very, very simple, simple thing that would have saved many, many lives. But it, you just have to have that principle in mind. The goal is protection of the vulnerable. It, other people living in the community, it's a little bit harder, but you can still think of policies. So for instance, people living in multi-generational homes, like a lot of, in Los Angeles, for instance, a lot of Hispanic families live, live in multi-generational homes. Older people live, live in, in the same ho- household with younger people. So if, if a younger person comes home, says, feels like they're having symptoms, you provide temporary housing for the older person, right? We, we use hotels for homeless people. Why can't we use hotels to provide temporary housing for older people right. while we're waiting? For workers living in the community, working in the community, older workers, you provide a sabbatical pay, right? So that they don't have to go and be exposed, be a Costco clerk or something. You're a 64-year-old Costco clerk. You're high risk. And yet we, we didn't give you any provision to, to avoid being, being exposed because you're called essential, I mean, I think it's a complicated, difficult thing, but it's well within the capacity of public health to think of creative ways to protect the vulnerable. That's essentially what we were calling for in, in October 2020. After the vaccine, now you have an opportunity for perfect focus protection. Mm-hmm. Canada should declare victory, actually, by the way. You, you all have done fantastically well in one sense. What you do is you use the vaccine to vaccinate the older population first. Florida did this within, within by the end of January, every single nursing home resident had offered the vaccine. They vaccinated the, the old very, very quickly in Florida. And as a result, even though the cases went up in the winter, you see, you saw this in Sweden mm. too. The cases have gone like exploded in Sweden uh, in the winter. And yet no, the deaths are flat. In the UK, you're seeing this cases, the Delta variant, the cases going up, no deaths for a month and a half or very few deaths for a month and a half. This, this strategy of using the vaccine for focus protection is the right strategy because now you have perfect focus protection just by the by dint of the vaccine. 
you just have you as long as you vaccinated the vulnerable population, you're kind of done. And Canada's done. You've seen this in Canada too, right? You, you all have vaccinated the old in Canada. And as a result, you may see some cases rising, but you're not seeing deaths. Yeah, you were saying, I remember reading uh, or something that you posted saying that we start to see the decoupling of case count and hospitalizations and deaths. Is that correct? Am I saying that? That's exactly right. I mean, it's exactly right. So like last year, the fear was every time you saw cases go up, every two weeks from now, you're going to see deaths and hospitalizations go up, right? That was the, that was the big fear. And it was that was exactly what you saw in places that didn't do focus protection. A coupling, very close coupling in time of hospitalizations, cases and hospitalizations and deaths. Now it's decoupled in places that have had successful focus protection, especially using the vaccine. The cases are going up in many places, but they're uncorrelated with death two weeks later. So I'm curious, as we took this strategy locking down, we didn't do the focus protection generally anywhere except for Sweden, right? And uh, Florida. I mean, there's a few, like, it's, it's, it's mixed. I mean, you know, like, some, some, I think in the early days, Sweden actually met, messed up. Like, this, the Stockholm, they'd made the same mistake with the nursing homes in Stockholm in, in April 2020 as any other places made with nursing homes. So I don't think any place has a perfect record. But I think, um, you know, I think we've sort of learned over time. Some places have learned better, more over time than other places. I mean, I'd point to Florida, actually, as a pretty good success story for focus protection. And Sweden, actually, I think, learned also uh, of, of how, to, how to implement those ideas. I mean, this is, this is a terrible disease. It's very, very infectious, and it infects this group. is really hard to stop. There was going to be damage from this no matter what we did. I think the problem is that in a rush to lockdown as a way to stop it from causing the damage, we actually end up causing more damage than, we, than, than, than not, not just from the disease, but from the lockdown, right? So it's uh, we've compounded the harm from the disease without actually mitigating it in many places. Yeah. So I'm curious, as the lockdowns occurred and then data came in, what was the data telling people? You know, I would imagine there's lots of studies now looking at this, at least if they're allowed to be published. I mean, this is this is one of the, like, so what's, you're asking what the effect of the lockdown was and what is the... Yeah, like now that we had them. And yeah. we basically have some comparators, you know, of open places versus closed, different response types, which tells you there was no consensus, by the way. You know, it's pretty obvious there was no consensus because you could literally drive across a state line or a country line and have a totally different way of being. Yeah. So the initial literature used, because we didn't have a randomized trial, right, of lockdown. We just sort of yeah. implemented it. So you need a counterfactual. You need to say, OK, what would have happened had we not locked down? And so the initial papers, they used these compartment models to say what would have happened if we had a lockdown. And compartment models, as I said, it's like built into the models that if you don't keep people apart, the disease spreads and kills people. Mm. So, so there's like an inherent bias within Yeah, it's like a circular reasoning. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm going to... And so what they, what they would do is they would look at the compartment models and say, okay, if we don't do anything, there's going to be X million deaths and we only got 100,000 deaths so that means we saved X million minus 100,000 lives, right? So that, that is essentially the, the sophistication of the original. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it was nonsense, right? So those aren't, that is not, that's a prediction, not a scientific test. Yeah. As the real world evidence come in, there's, there's arguments about some specific policies versus others. Uh, but I'll say, broadly speaking, draconian lockdown has not succeeded. And I'll give you just a very, very, and this is a complicated literature, but I, I'll just give you uh, one data point, right? So Disney World in Florida has been open since, since summer of last year, and Disneyland in California has been closed. Hmm. California, my children, I I'm live in California, my children for a year and a half have not been in school in person, except maybe a couple of days, like one or two days a week at most, just, you know, again, just recently. And whereas in Florida, the schools have been open the entire time, since all, all of last year. 
wow. in person, one hundred percent, no, 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 you know, with like no restrictions. Uh, so the businesses have been closed in, in California. Uh, California open in Florida all all year long, all even through the winter. Florida, the age adjusted COVID mortality is lower by about thirty percent, forty percent than in California. The wow, age adjusted, that's significant. Yeah, Florida is one of the oldest places in the country, yeah. and in the country, and yet it had better COVID outcomes, both for over sixty-five and under sixty-five, than California, which has been locked down. And I would imagine you could argue too that their seasonality and temperature would be pretty similar, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean they're sort of in the same kind yeah. of temperate zone. But now it's also been a full year, so more than a, you know year and a half. So we we kind of had like the full cycle. California experienced much of its deaths in the winter. This, this past winter, whereas Florida experienced much of like a, its deaths in, in the um, it's sort of the late summer COVID wave from last year. I think Florida would have had worse outcomes if it had not adopted focus protection during the wintertime. And, and specifically, like they, they, they worked really hard to protect nursing homes. They reduced staff rotation. Mm. Like one big problem in many places is you have staff members in nursing homes who work in multiple nursing homes. So they track the disease from one place to another. Reducing staff rotations helped. Using rapid antigen tests so people could visit, but only only if they were That's negative. Right. Using using like I mean, just using masks or training training people to actually use masks properly. I think a lot of uh, a lot of sort of ideas that went into that to get to the good, the result that you have. I mean, it's not a perfect result. You know, I think it's something still 138 deaths per hundred thousand. Still a lot of deaths. Whereas California is 170 or something. But in any case, like, still it's better than California as far as COVID. And they didn't have right. the lockdown. Their children went to school the whole year. Their businesses are still still running. Disney, you could go to Disney World all year. I think of the impact, you know, already better COVID results. And also they're not going through the stress of their businesses closing. They still have social lives. They still have love and connection. They have touch. They have all these things that are so important for our bodies. And their relationships, you know, they're not inundated. You know, I know so many people who've moved to Florida or moved to Texas, which shows you what humans want. They want to move towards freedom. So there is a value that's inherent within us, obviously. And you know what I found different too, because we were living in Idaho during the last winter and it was pretty open. When I went back to Canada and had to quarantine and do all the things, even though I had at that point, like nine negative tests, I'm exaggerating, but I had like four and no, you know, I, there made no sense that I was staying inside as a perfectly healthy individual. By day 14, you're like, brain is frying. And I, I consider myself to have pretty sound mental health most of the time. And I was observing my own fear. My, you know, my parents, I saw them after the quarantine. My dad's 76, my mom's 71. My dad would be considered higher risk. And I'm perfectly healthy in here. And I know how it all works. But yet, because I've consumed some media in order to be abreast of both sides, I was like, am I going to give my dad or mom COVID and kill them? Like, I was just like, it's so interesting to observe oneself and still not be able to stay in objectivity, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like a couple of very simple things could have had, you, you could have had the human touch you wanted and also minimize the risk. So for instance, I'll give, you, I'll give you one very simple thing that we should have done. The testing regimen is designed in Canada, in the United States, like in most, most places, to identify people with the disease and, and, and move them from the population, quarantine them. 
even when you're negative, you're presumptively positive when you when you cross the border and you get the, the, the horrible 14 days, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you testing me then? Just send me to my damn yeah. house. Like, uh, you know? And so you tied the testing to public reporting because you needed to have, because if I, if I don't, my public health authorities don't know that you're positive, though, and they can't do contact tracing. Then they can't go, go backwards and try to find who, who got it. Now, the contact tracing turned out to be really, really ineffective. Like people don't cooperate with contact tracers. They don't want to rat their families out, family members out. They don't want to rat their friends out. They don't, it just doesn't work. Like, and, you know, and when there's an uptick in cases, there's a huge delay in contacting anybody. Because you you overwhelm the contact traces just so the time you need them the most and the, and is the longest delay and that delay undermines the efficacy of contact tracing because what happens is you know I was at that supermarket three weeks ago and I'm sick now yeah um, like thanks for your help you know yeah it's just like it's already too late you may as well just be randomly quarantining people in the population at large which is what a lockdown actually is right so um, <laughs> oh yeah yeah the tying of the testing to the public reporting that's the problem. Right. You shouldn't be tying testing the public reporting because doing of that, what it does is it imbues this test with this, not just am I sick or healthy, it imbues this with all of the policies that are going to come down on me, all of the people that are going to come down on me, and all the people in my lives are going to affect just by dint of this test, which actually is kind of noisy. Right. right. If we had instead disconnected the testing from public reporting, if we allowed development of and, and widespread dissemination of very cheap at-home tests, which actually were, many of them were available very quickly. It just took a long time to like get the regulatory approval to get them in, in place. And then even then they were tied to public reporting. Then what you could do is you could take a quick rapid antigen test to see within five minutes, you know, if you're positive or negative, at least you have some indicator of it. Yeah. And if you're, ne- if you're positive, don't go visit your mom and dad, right? If you, 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 you enable, you, you give people the information they need to take good, inf- good decisions in their lives at their fingertips without connecting it to this public reporting. And all of a sudden, I think you would have had much, much better outcomes because nobody wants to infect their parents. Nobody right. wants to hurt anybody else. We, instead of giving people, empowering people with these kinds of kinds of tools, we said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we don't trust you. So we're gonna, when we're gonna check, we're gonna force you to get checked. We're gonna tie it to all these other sort of restrictive things. We've made the decision to get tested for a fraught thing as opposed to an empowering thing. Yeah, I find that fascinating because psychologically it infantilizes as the citizens and then we actually and the government becomes parentified and then we sort of look to them for all this direction. But we are not actually adulting ourselves as opposed to saying what you're saying, which is those rapid tests are low cost, right? They're like three to five bucks or something. The amount of money that we've spent, no matter the country in paying for people's lives during lockdowns is substantially much higher not to you know, add to that the mental health implications, the future costs of all the delayed diagnoses, all those types of things. And you're right. Like, had I just been able to take rapid test, which let's say had, it had some false positivity, that's still fine. Cause at least I'm not going, you know, and. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, it's funny, the PCR test, it, it actually has this sort of weird property that it turns positive, even if you're not infectious, like say you've recovered Often it stays positive for for like you know a while after you recovered, where you're and you're not actually a risk to anybody. So it's positive while you're not a risk of infecting anybody. The rapid antigen test, the antigen test actually don't have that property. They're only positive if you're actually infectious oh, or that's more cool. like yeah. So, so I think uh, I mean you you had this like 
connection between this relatively inaccurate PCR test, inaccurate as far as like what you care about, which is are you infectious? And uh, you tie it to public public reporting. It's a, a perfect storm where you you now have this vast amount of money spent on a testing technology that imprisons rather than frees. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, that we are restricted rather than going about our day. You know, and what was interesting too, because people are so in that fear of case numbers, case numbers, case numbers. And no one being able to access information as to the validity of the PCR test, unless you dove a little deeper and started to learn about cycle counts and learn about, you know, these types of things. You didn't know that case numbers wasn't necessarily actually a a driver of, you know, hospitalizations and deaths would have been, I'm guessing, a better way of dictating how severe was the disease within the population. Is that fair to say? Completely. I mean, the case numbers by themselves are me. Actually, you can see it now. The cases are going like in the UK, the cases are going skyrocketing up right now and there's no deaths. It's been skyrocketing up for like six weeks. This Delta variant spreads, but because they've vaccinated their old, they aren't getting the deaths, not getting the hospitalizations. They're not going to because the vaccines are effective and they finally do focus protection that way. I like the analogy I like to use is to a war, right? So the Vietnam War, we count body bags of our enemies as a measure of success. Well, I mean, how did that turn out? Like it just right. it didn't, like you just don't, like it's not a measure of success in war to decide how many people you've killed. The measure of success is, is the enemy defeated, mm-hmm. right? Is okay. they demoralized? Are they, are they, are they, have you captured their key things? I mean, here we focused on case counts as if it were the key metric. And we forgot about other metrics like number of people who skipped their cancer screening, number of people who had heart attacks and stayed home, number the, the amount of number of people who had drug overdoses and died from from anxiety from you know anxiety or depression, you know the the, num- the number of pe- the years of, of of school lost and learning loss in children. We had a whole. I mean, I can't even. I mean, I, I, I'm scratching the surface because it affected every aspect of life. Number of people that died of starvation worldwide because of the lo- the economic damage from the lockdowns number of tuberculosis patients that, that that didn't get treatment properly worldwide, million in the millions who died as a result. I mean, I think uh, there's so many metrics one should be looking at when you have a society-wide intervention of, of, the, of the scope of lockdowns. And yet we looked at one, we looked at cases and decided that was all we cared about for a year and a half. Every, every day in the newspaper, that's all you saw as if that were a measure of societal well-being or the only measure of societal well-being. When you see that fear, then what it does to the human system is I'm afraid of death. So then I'm going to cling to what my public health authority has told me is the only way to prevent death, which is wearing masks and locking down. So then I'm going to report the other people. I'm going to be in a constant state of vigilance. So that means my body's in fight, flight, freeze, fawn. I'm not, my cortisol states are chronically high. You know, you think of all the inflammatory markers that that leads to. I mean, it's correlation to disease, especially because, you know, it's one thing to say now, but we're going to, I would imagine, see this stretch out for a long period of time, extended hypertension, you know, cardiovascular disease, cancer, all the things. Well, I mean, let's just take cancer. Like half of women skipped mammograms last year. We're going to be seeing stage four breast cancers this year that should have been picked up as stage two. Women are going to die of breast cancer this year because they, they because of the lockdowns. And we're going to see that tail go go for quite a while. I mean, I just, it's really, it's, it's it's heartbreaking. The fear, it's, it's, it just, it's not just that it infects you individually. It also creates this social distrust that it's very hard to shake, right? So I'm sure everyone's had this experience. You walk down the street 
and you, you someone else is walking the other direction, they jump a- away from you. We now think of other humans as if we're just bags of germs. It's not healthy for societies to have that as, a, as our sort of de- default mode of interactions with strangers. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge mistake, I think. To, to have that be like, you know, and especially create these like very strange political divisions. You know, I, I like think back on HIV, right? So HIV, what was a, a, a horrible mistake that public health made was that it, it allowed people with HIV to be stigmatized, the disease to become a division between dirty and clean, as opposed to people who need compassionate care, right? We've done that with COVID at a population-wide scale. We said, look, uh, if you had COVID, you're, you, you, well, that means you failed. There was like, you didn't, what's the first question you get asked if you get COVID is, well, what did you do wrong? You know, what did you fail at? Where did you go? go? What rule did you break? And who gave it to you? You know, whose fault is it? Right. For a respiratory disease, well, it's it's really hard to say exactly who gave it to you. It's like, it may be be impossible to say. They just spread. I mean, this is a very infectious disease. I mean, so it, yeah, it it spreads. So it's like, you shouldn't be moralizing a disease. You should be providing care and compassion for someone who's sick as you can, help them to, to get better, isolate them from people who might really die from the disease if they were to get it or get severe outcomes. I mean, there's like, essentially, you have to demoralize the disease. And instead, we, we, we created stigma around getting COVID. We created moralization around the wearing of masks. Uh, I mean, strange thing. Like, think about this. Like, we got the vaccine. You got the vaccine. It's it's a very effective vaccine protecting against severe outcomes. And yet our public health officials were still saying you should wear the mask for some reason. As if, because you can't see that you're, that I'm vaccinated. So I might still be unclean unless I show you with the, with the mask that I'm clean. You know, it, speaking of what you're saying, moralizing, I never thought of it in that sense, although I've certainly experienced this moralizing, you know, where there's a hierarchy created that, you know, I'm really trying to be a bridge of dialogue. That dialogue is pretty much dead. It's been extinguished. And I'm saying like, I'm coming out of the rubble because I'm not going to allow this conversation and discourse to not exist because the essence of healthy conversation, of healthy relating is actually that you and I can both have an experience of a situation and neither of our experiences are actually invalid. But between the two of us, we'll find a commonality. We'll find shared connection and it deepens intimacy. It deepens friendship. It deepens trust. And what I noticed like the other day, I hadn't seen a friend in a while. And, you know, it's natural for us to hug when we see each other. And he said to me, oh, I heard you're anti-vax, which in no way have I been anti anything. I've really just been pro-dialogue and and I have stances against, you know, there not being this open conversation. And what was really fascinating and He's a really, you know, open guy. He was just playing and, but he wasn't, you know, and there's that subtle nuance of a microaggression in there. And I said to him, you know, it's fascinating when you put me in that box, then you don't have to talk to me about anything. I just get put in this box and I get dismissed as a conspiracy theorist or something like that when, which is just gaslighting, you know, then I don't have any opportunity and I'm totally invalidated. I'm being put into this group and you're, you're the other. Right. And right? so, I mean, like, yeah, I'm curious your experience of that, because here you've worked for, you know, o- over de- more, de- plenty of decades in this area of work. You are teaching at an esteemed university and you're having these conversations. What has been the result for you and for your career 
you know, and, and just maybe your colleagues who, you know, normally you would have had open discourse about any other pandemic response or maybe H1N1 was easier to talk about. So I'm curious about that. I mean, it's been absolutely terrible. I mean, in one sense, like I, I think um, I've lost friends. The atmosphere at Stanford has been chilling. Wow. It's been very, very difficult to speak. I've, I've managed to, like this this podcast is like, I've managed to like get lots and lots of people outside outside of Stanford to, to talk with me. Actually, that's been quite gratifying. And I've learned a lot. I mean, there's things I've learned that I changed my mind about things that that uh, I, as a result of those conversations, they're at, you're, like what you said, I completely agree with. Like, you have no choice. I mean, it's, it's, if you want to if you want to grow, you have to interconnect with people that don't agree with you. And yet at, at home, like the, there's so many friends that I've lost who just have closed their minds. They've decided that they know that they know that my opinions are dangerous or some such thing. And as a result, close me out. I didn't, I, you know, like the, I, <laughs> I haven't been fired. So I guess there's that going for me, but I, I do think, um, I mean, like, I just wish that that were not so, but it is, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's created this like situation where I wonder when, when people start coming back to the office, how that, how that's going to look, can I really interact with, with them exactly the same way? But I have made, I mean, like, yeah. I've made friends <laughs> that I never would have otherwise made all, all around the world as a result of my my work in the pandemic. And that for that, I'm quite grateful. Uh, you know, some, some amazing people that I've gotten to know. And I have this recurring, like, daydream. We're going to have, the, every, the world's finally opened again. We have this, like, massive party, probably in Great Barrington, I don't know, <laughs> where they are, all my all my new friends come and we just, we just, you know, I don't know, sell it. We shake hands, which is the secret COVID rebel handshake is the actual. Isn't it right? I don't know. I mean, I just, that's it. Uh, I don't know what my, where my life will go after this. I mean, I still, I'm interested in so many things I was interested in before. You know, I, I worked before on, on scientific policy and on making science work better. I worked on health policy and and, and uh, get making healthcare systems work better. I'm still interested in those things, but I don't know when I'll be able to transition back to work like that because I, I still feel like there's quite a lot left to do in, on the COVID world. I'll know the pandemic's over when I no longer get podcasts. Yeah, when you're not being like just inundated with people like, can we just have this conversation? I mean, I am grateful for that opportunity. I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but I do, I do kind of, it's been interesting. I mean, I don't say my life is doesn't change. I think everybody's life has changed as a result of this. And certainly that's Yet, from a societal community perspective, you were speaking to how much we need community. We need to be amongst groups. And, you know, when you don't share an opinion that the group shares, your belonging is threatened. And, you know, I remember hearing Gabor Mate speak, who's a physician who works in addiction. And I remember him saying that humans have two needs, the need for authenticity and the need for belonging. And when authenticity threatens belonging, belonging wins till it doesn't. And I really feel like there's this beautiful unification of people that are saying like, actually, this conversation matters more than whether you like me. You know, I don't, I'm not like trying to prop anyone up here, but I'm saying like, when you can do that, your values and your integrity are coming ahead of your desire to belong. And then you find a new sense of belonging. So I just want to acknowledge you for the risks that you've taken to put, you know, you sort of joked, like I haven't been fired yet, but the fact that that's even on the table is actually kind of ridiculous. The fact that that is a poss- that could have been a possibility or still is a possibility is actually quite sad. Yeah. People who've signed the Great Banking Declaration, you know, tens of thousands of doctors and, and uh, scientists, people have written me stories that they actually have, there have been people fired for signing it. There have been people who who've uh, been socially ostracized. They've been. I mean, it is, it is a 
it's a sad thing, but it's, it's it it that that it requires an act of courage to say to say what you're seeing. I don't. I just I, in the beginning of the epidemic, I just couldn't. I couldn't stay silent. I just, I just I, my very first reaction was this is an inhuman policy that is going to cause catastrophic harm to poor people around the world. It was my very first reaction, right? It, it's and and that's exactly what's happened. Tens of millions of people, the according to the UN, tens of millions of people have been put into starvation and poverty as a result of the economic collapse caused by the lockdowns. I just I mean, I don't know. I was like, what is the purpose of my career? It's like it can't possibly be just to just to have a tenured job where people say, oh gosh, he's a right. I mean, that's just useless. Who cares about that, right? That's, at the end of the day, I have a job, I have a responsibility to, that's beyond me, that's beyond my, the position I hold. So, you know, what, I, what, what can you do, right? You have to say what you see. You have, you're, put in a position, you're put somewhere for a reason, I think. That's, that's been my sense. Yeah, I sort of look back at, because, you know, I couldn't go back to being a pharmaceutical rep now with what I know, but it certainly prepared me to understand clinical data and health data and science. And, you know, I used to sell a product that used the PCR test. So I had an understanding of the test and that immediately made me into this curious space. So I consider myself really sort of what you were saying, you know, you're sort of like in the perfect place at the perfect time. And the world has prepared us to have a conversation. And, you know, the fascinating thing, which I, I know you brought up Scott Atlas before, and I'm sure I would imagine it's been your experience too, please let me know is, you know, someone will just say to me, stay in your lane you know, stay in relationships. I'm like, this is relationships. This is actually all relationships. And, you know, this idea that having this conversation means I don't care about the old person who died from COVID. It's actually that I do care, but I also care about the addict who overdosed, who wouldn't have, or person who's now depressed and lost their job or the young person who has suicidal ideation. And, you know, I'm curious if that's been your experience too. Have people been like, you can't talk, you shouldn't, this is, are, are my favorite. I'm disappointed. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, shame, I, really nasty, shame, nasty, shame, right? I mean, I just, I, I think, um, I, I haven't gotten a ton of stay in your lane, partly because I've written in epidemiology a ton. I have, I have had a few people probably like, this is my lane. This I, is wrote, my lane. I wrote the road. <laughs> I mean, so, I have had a lot of people who are just, uh, you know, a lot of like either they they're silent in their disappointment or like some people just nasty, nasty emails to me. Whenever, whenever, I, but you know, like some, 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 some racist. I mean, just anyway, I, whatever. It's just, it's one of this one of the. I figured, I mean, that that actually doesn't affect me. I mean, like they're they're doing it because they they think I'm dangerous. I wish that they would just talk with me, but this is what it is. Like, I think they're acting out of fear. And I, I what I've been working toward is like trying to figure out ways to forgive rather than hold people because you know I just I think a lot of it is just it's understandable fear. Even even in very very smart people, actually, you know, I wanted to talk about like one one thing you brought up is really interesting is is the is is the old person living in the nursing home. I think even there is COVID really the only thing we care. Like so many of our older populations have died of loneliness in 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 nursing home settings. They've died if they didn't die of loneliness, they died lonely, separated from their family. Um, is that our only goal in life? Is to make sure they don't die of COVID? I mean, again, even even there where you have the most vulnerable. You have to be human. You have to think that there's more to, 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 to human life than just infection control when you're talking about it. even an older person who's at risk from, from uh, if they were to get, the COVID, get COVID, have a severe outcome. Well, they have other needs. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that that wasn't even part. It's like, let's just prevent this one thing, even though we might be turning up the volume on all these other things, which is, it, that's where you really start to see the politicization of it. It's like, but what are you doing about COVID? Like, 
who cares about the other stuff? What are you doing about COVID? I mean, it's really, you know, I, don't, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but I think I've, I'm starting to see signs in the United States that, that, that the fear is starting to dissipate and that people are starting to come out. Like the friends that I haven't seen in a year and a half that are now coming out of their house. I mean, it's, it's actually quite nice. Like I said, I think, the, I think all of us, no matter which side we were on, and it's, it's, and it's regrettable there had to be sides, but whichever side we were on during the lockdowns, I have to f- figure out a way to reconnect with, our, with, with one another and find ways to forgive each other. We, I think a lot of it was just act, actions out of fear. People weren't acting out of their true selves. When I think when the divisiveness has divided us, that's when the sort of propaganda or narrative has actually won. And it is an actually an act of victory within oneself to be able to hold opposing views, right? You know, as we mentioned earlier, and I'm curious, like I'm sure you saw in Canada, like a physician lost his job in Saskatchewan for saying that we needed informed consent for children. And, you know, in Canada, depending on the province, I believe, but I know this is for sure true, I I think in Ontario, is that kids 12 and older can get vaccinated without their parental consent. And they're even giving kids ice cream, you know, come to this vaccine stand, get your vaccine and get ice cream. And I'm, you know, again, not a public health expert. And when I look at the risk benefit, I sort of go, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, so as I ask sort of, what are your thoughts on that? I also want to get your thoughts on variants because variants, you know, are sort of jokingly called scariants in sort of (laughs) pro conversation world. And I'm curious because everything I've heard about variants is it's natural, it's normal. And so can we speak, if you could speak to that, because you mentioned Delta, which is now the new main news grabber, Delta's deadly, watch out for Delta, Beta, Gamma, you know, so I'm curious your thoughts on on both those things. So relationships between parents and children is a sacred thing. Public health, I'm not saying that it should never be the case that public health should never intervene, right? So for instance, you have child protective services that intervenes when you have a, a, a parent abusing, abusing a child that is completely appropriate. This is not a case like that. Here you have a vaccine for whom the benefit to children is, if it's net positive, it's only barely so. And, I, and my, by my calculation, especially given the risk of, of myocarditis that we've seen, it's, and, we don't, and the fact that we don't really know the longer term effects of it, it's not positive for children in, my, in my, my, my reckoning. And I can certainly see a lot of parents thinking that way. If you're over 70 or 60, it's, it's positive in my reckoning. So you know, it's a nuanced thing. So you're not having, if you decide not to give your child a vaccine, you know, 12-year-old child a vaccine, you're not abusing them. You're making a judgment on the basis of who, you know, what your kid is, what risks they face in their life. You're, you're, just, you're being a parent. I don't think it's right for, the, for public health to intervene in that case to substitute their judgment for the parent's judgment. I think it's a violation of trust. And I think it undermines the trust that's required for other vaccines that are absolutely necessary for public health to function, for, for public health, right? The, and so, for instance, like the DPT vaccines are such a fantastic vaccine. It really does protect children from all kinds of nasty things. And if you undermine public trust in public health through this forced va- vaccination for this thing where like people, by their own reasonable judgment, might say, well, it's not right for my kid. Now they're going to say, well, how about these other things? Are they, is, should I trust them there? I think it, it's really risky for for many many other public health th- goals to require this kind of uh, sort of to have this kind of intervention. I think it's really dangerous. And I think um, yeah, I don't really understand. I don't really understand. Uh, let me give you an example. I saw not related to vaccines, which I just shocked me. Um, 
the the uh, dur- during Thanksgiving of last year, Thanksgiving of course is November holiday in the United States, where families tend to get together. Although it didn't happen so much this past year, there was a there was a report of of a, of a school teacher uh, encouraged by public health authorities asking children when they got back from Thanksgiving, did they have an in person Thanksgiving with grandpa? Essentially, like using children as a way to 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 snitch on their parents in a free country. I mean, it's remarkable, right? I mean, just you just you can't uh, you can't violate these kinds of norms costlessly. They're norms for a reason, and the fact that public health felt free to violate them is going to be it's going to be it's it's caused damage that'll be difficult to repair. It caused because public health for it to work, the public has to trust it. It's a two way street. And if it doesn't trust it, it's going to, why even have a public health, right? Just, yeah, public health is so vital. You have to have public health functioning well with this trust for it to work. I, I don't know how they re- repair the damage, but they're going to have to work to do that. You asked about variants. So the variants, you're absolutely right. The, the, this is an RNA virus. RNA viruses mutate all the time. They were mutating from the, the you know, from its very inception, it's mutating. As soon as it replicates, it, t- it starts to mutate. The vast number of those mutations are useless. They don't, they, in fact, they harm the virus, right? Now, a few of them have some small, some, some selective advantage. And you starting, you, and so it's not surprising that those selective advantages would, 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 uh, would take hold. Now, what do the selective advantages look like? Well, they, it can either make the virus more transmissible. It can make the virus more deadly. Now, deadly is a funny thing, because if you have a virus that kills at higher rates, that's not actually necessarily good for the virus. Because the more deadly it is, the less less like the more sick it makes you, they're less likely to go out and spread the thing, right? So it's not clear that, uh, generally speaking, you would think that the virus would become more transmissible. And in fact, that's what we've seen with the with these these mutations, like the alpha, beta, gamma, whatever mutations, delta. They're all more transmissible than the original wild type virus. The key thing isn't whether they're, that's actually not all that scary, believe it or not. The key thing is, does the new virus the, these mutations? Does it evade natural immunity for someone who previously was infected? Does it evade the vaccine-mediated immunity, right? So if someone who got the vaccine, are they now susceptible to the Delta variant, for getting sick from the Delta variant, right? That is the key question, right? So, And it turns out that none of the, the, the variants, none of them evade natural immunity, and none of them evade vaccine-mediated immunity. Now, you, you can get sick again. You can catch the virus a second time. That, that happens. Even if you had the vaccine, you can catch it. But you'll have a mild cold, most likely. You won't get, really, you won't, you won't get sick and die. Right? So it's, it doesn't prevent transmission of the virus. So you can still get it. But, and you might still transmit it. But you don't, don't get sick and die. That's the most important thing, right? Especially if you want a strategy of focus protection. Right, so the, vi- the 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 vaccine used for focus protection means not that you won't ever transmit the virus again. The fact that you got sick and recovered, you can still get the infection again, probably a year or two later, right? But you won't get sick or die because you're protected from that severe outcome by your immune system. And so the variants are not that scary to me, and the reason is that the previous immunity works either the vaccine or, or, or previous, pre, you know, your recovery from it. It works against protecting you against the thing you care about, which is getting severely ill and dying. It essentially turns the virus into a cold, even against the variants. In Canadian media, I noticed recently that there was a message saying, and this was from a public health expert, saying that 
unvaccinated people will be to blame for variants, for mutations that become more deadly. And I thought, well, that seems like a pretty dangerous message to send because it creates that divisiveness. And I was just curious as to your thoughts on that. I mean, it's hard to predict evolution. <laughs> because people are people are going to sit here and argue about what what's what, what's causing evolution to happen. Well, evolution just happens. You know, I, I just, I mean, I like actually, you know, in some sense, the vaccinated, if you have somebody that gets infected that's been vaccinated, the, the, and you have a mutation that evades the vaccine, in some sense, that's more dangerous for, for public health. That's more likely to happen in a vaccinated person. That's theory. I'm not going to make policy on the basis of that theory because it's like I'm trying to control this natural evolutionary process that is just, it's hard to like, hard, hard for us to see, hard for us to understand. You don't, you don't make policy around that. You make policy around things that you actually have some hope of controlling. And you certainly do not scare the population around that. You certainly do not create division between clean and unclean in the population around that. I think it's irresponsible. Huh, it's so scary to think that people have a microphone who are doing that. And not just a microphone, but the amplification of media. And, you know, I look at what's going on. I got shadow banned because I shared like a research study that was published and peer reviewed. And I shared it on my Instagram stories and I didn't get a warning. I didn't get anything. You know, the little annoying COVID bop thing pops up with anything with a C in it. It doesn't matter. You could have a, anything in there. And I saw like normally, let's say my reaches reach, uh, you know, over a million accounts that aren't mine in a week. I had it turned down to almost no one who didn't follow me saw my stuff. And I noticed, because the thing that I shared, I went to my personal account and I looked at my stories and I didn't actually, I wasn't looking for this, but I noticed it. I went through my stories and the story that I had shared wasn't in there. And I was like, wait, did someone on my team delete it? Someone on my social media team or did, did it get taken down? So I went back to my social media profile and I went in and, and it's not in my story. So that made no sense where to go. So this is crazy. I go back to the person who shared it because I know in our message history, it'll show up and I click on it and it opens up in my stories. So they, without telling me and without telling anyone following me, without warning me, just because the story was something they didn't want people to see, which it was about pharmaceutical companies paying fines. $2 billion for Pfizer or whatever. It was factual. It wasn't, it wasn't even anything fear-mongering or anything. It was saying, stay objective when you think you're going to be saved by a company that they've also, you know, been dishonest in the past. And it was crazy to me to see that it just was gone. And I, that was my first experience, something so, it, it felt really violating and it felt unfair and it felt coercive and manipulative. And like everything I've been taught to fight for in Canada and the United States or, you know, worldwide and free, you know, countries that are seemingly free. And, you know, but that it's, control it's of media. Right. It's underhanded, right? So like there's somebody either wrote an algorithm or somebody that just like that looked at it and decided that you shouldn't have your voice. And instead of debating with you, like, here's what I think, they just stealthily remove you from the conversation. I think the big tech companies have a lot to answer for. So I, I was in a, a round table, a public round table with the governor of Florida, me and, and uh, some of the other GBD folks, Representative Declaration folks, public round table recorded by media and, you know, like te television stations where we're talking about 
Florida public policy on COVID. So you have the governor of Florida showing the public the basis for his decisions on COVID. Isn't that good government? I mean, isn't that what your government is supposed to do? That's the only one I've heard of. Now you can you can disagree with what the governor does, but at least now you have a basis for understanding. You may say we're wrong. I mean, that's all fine, but you now now as a member of the public have a basis for understanding what advice the governor is getting. That was pulled off of YouTube. That conversation was pulled off of YouTube, and you know on what basis? Like uh, during one one point in the conversation, the governor asked me, "Did I think making use requiring children to wear masks is on net good for them?" You know, I've, I know this literature on, I've seen this literature on, on like developmental harms that children, I mean, do, children need to see faces in order to learn to talk. Yeah. Empathy, all the things. Yeah. And they need to, exactly. They need to, in order to become fully human in some sense, like, like or it harms them, right? Take yeah. this, slows that up, slows that development up. So I'm like, I don't, and I, and there's also this literature on how children are less efficient spreaders of the disease than adults are. Really convincing evidence on that, actually. So in my judgment, uh, now, I may, you may disagree with me as an expert, but like, fine, I like, can show me the evidence. I'll show you my evidence. We can have a discussion. But in my judgment, when, when the governor asked me that, I said, look, I don't think it's a good idea for to require children to, on net, have masks. I, I, I value the flourishing of children too much, much more than the minor decrease in infection control you get from masking children. That's my judgment, right? Uh, you two pulled that video on the basis of my statement. Now, I, I don't, there's no argument there. There's no like, Oh no, Jay's wrong because X, Y, and Z. Here's why, and let's have a discussion where I might learn or they might learn. It's just we're going to pull you. It's it is dangerous to science. It's dangerous to public health, and it's dangerous. Frankly, it's dangerous for democracy. I think that the big tech companies, because they've stifled this this kind of conversation, have created public distrust and created a situation where you know we don't trust. We don't trust each other. They're, and it, they're going to have quite, I think, quite a lot to answer for, I think. I mean, like, you know, they've, they've been wrong about a lot of the science that they've done. They don't have the expertise to actually make the arguments that they're making. And if they do, show us, show, like, bring out, bring out the people that are making these, these algorithms and show us what, out, what, what science they're basing it on, these decisions on. They won't debate. They're just making decisions, harming the public discussion. I think we're going to need to visit that in order to... to because I think they played a malign role in the public policy around this. Yeah, amen. It feels like they've had some massive overreach. And also, I've seen them do things like censor someone like you and other people who are basically the people you check facts against, like their research. You know, I think it's, it's uh, you know, I'm following what's going on with Brett Weinstein, too, and, and his experience with YouTube censoring him. And I just... I'm happy that the conversation is coming to this very large, you know, he's caused quite an uproar. And I know there was just an emergency podcast episode done with Joe Rogan and Pierre Corey, I believe is the other doctor's name. And it's, that's big because to get it in that many people's ears is at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. I hope that, that, that actually starts to open things up. I mean, I just, I don't, I think, um, you know, what, what you have here is there are a group of scientists on the other side who disagree with me about certain mm-hmm. things. They're the ones working with big tech to suppress people they don't agree with. I mean, if there's a scientific debate, my God, it's a scientist's responsibility to let that scientific debate happen, not to work to suppress it in order to win by default, if you will. It's, it's absolutely nuts. And the big tech has sort of enabled that to occur. It makes me think of like, if my girlfriend and I disagreed on something, that I could have an advocate for me who just gets to quiet her. You know, like, I'm just <laughs> always right. It's like every scientist who has 
no humility and actually doesn't want to be wrong, which, you know, I think what's, you know, when, when I find out I was wrong about something, there's a beautiful thing to that because as you said, like no scientist is right. You're just awaiting being wrong. And, you know, I hope that's not always true in my relationship, but what's good about that perspective is that when I experience being wrong, what is actually occurring is I'm deepening my understanding of how the world works, how relationships work. And as I said at the beginning, I'm deepening intimacy and connection. And God, if only we all lived with that. But I'm I'm so grateful that I threw this massive Hail Mary on the LinkedIn and was like, listen, I would love to have you on because I needed someone who is an expert in this field to be able to share with us some insights and some thoughts. And I have so much gratitude to you. Mark, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get to know you. I think we have, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned from it. Yeah, myself massively learned from, and I'm curious for uh, people listening, you know, I, I would love to know what is a message of hope, you know, that we, as we close this out, I feel like hope that we're having this conversation, which is great. And I, I'm curious what other, just in, because you're on the forefront of what's going on, what is some hope that you I, have? I think there's a lot to hope for. I mean, I think, I think, you know, in many places that have vaccinated the older population, we have won the war against this virus. We, and it, we should, we should declare VC day, Victor, Victor of Corner day. I mean, in, in, in places like, I think Canada should declare VC day. It really should. Oh, I wish um, they would there. I, Cause it, I mean, just look at the numbers. I mean, I, th- I think, um, in the, in the United States, the attitude, the, the attitudes and fear is dissipating. I can feel it around me. People are, are, are coming out. And, uh, and I think, it, and I think we are in many parts of the world on our way to, to having, learning how to live with the virus and having our lives start to restart again. And so I think that's all that the good, it's, it's coming. Those of you who are listening and that are sitting and, and thinking, when will this end? I, I, you shouldn't make predictions as a scientist, but I'm going to make one. It's, the days are coming soon. This will not go on forever. Uh, hold on. You are, you're on, uh, we're, we're on our way to getting our lives. Oh, beautiful. And, and- and for people who, if they want to find out more about you or or follow you and get more information as you have this conversation out loud, uh, where can they find you? And I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. So I, I my, the main thing I'm working on these days is a project called collateralglobal.org, Collateral Global. So you can find that on the web. It's basically a, a project to document stories about the, 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 the experience of lockdowns, mostly harms. And and the the scholarly literature about the about what harms they are, but told in a way that that, that the public can understand. It's called collateralglobal.org. And then also I have a LinkedIn page. I have avoided social media except to follow baby pictures of my cousins on Facebook. So that, that that's <laughs> useless. But on LinkedIn, I'm start I'm starting to post some of my more professional work. So if you if you're curious about that, you're welcome to follow there. Amazing. Thanks. I'll make sure I link it out. And once again, so much gratitude. Thank you for your time and your expertise and, and your courage. Thank you.